All right, guys, it's Naturally Educated, and today we're going to be talking about preserving marine biodiversity in the UAE, and what an episode we have today. I'm Majal Qasmi, and as always, my co-host, Abdurrahman Zahabi. I wanted to remind you guys, as always, get in touch with us, reach out with comments, or tell us what you think. You'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Environment Abu Dhabi, one word. You can also find us on our website or YouTube at Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. Give us a like and hit the subscribe button wherever you find us or wherever you listen on your podcast app. So with us today, our guest, Winston Coey, the Manager of Marine Policy at the Environment Agency of Abu Dhabi. He's also a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, a marine conservationist, an author, and a film director. Welcome to the show, Winston. Shokran Jazeelan. Welcome, Winston. Shokran Jazeelan, Dr. Majid. Afwan, Afwan. Abdurrahman, Sheikh Barak, Sheikh Barakom. Hello, Allah. Whoa, <laughs> Winston, your, your, your Arabic is spot on. Shokran Jazeelan. El Hayat Abu Abadabi, Freak Wahid, Astat, Mashallah. Akid, Akid. I love it. Well, listen, we're going to get right into this because we know that there is a lot to talk about and we're really glad to have you here to help us walk through this. So let's first start with why don't you give a background or an overview of the Arabian Gulf and its importance to biodiversity? It's known as a natural climate change laboratory, if you will. And why is that the case? So the Arabian Gulf, it's a it's a fascinating body of water. In summer, it's the hottest sea in the world. It gets up to 37 degrees Celsius. And in winter, it swings down to 16 degrees Celsius. So it gets very, very cold in winter. So everything that sort of lives here is living at the edge of its livable range. This is why it's referred to as that natural climate change laboratory, because any sort of climate change impacts will manifest here first, typically during summer. It's typically shallow, sort of 30 to 70 metres. We've got some fascinating species from the second largest dugong population in the world to dolphins, to turtles, to rogue whale sharks that end up in canals, habitats, corals, mangroves, seagrass. And our role at the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi is to typically act as the, I guess, the referee between nature and people and, and, and the environment. So, of course, the Arabian Gulf is important globally, I assume. Give us a bit more insight, Winston, into fisheries, you know, in the lens of uh, marine policy portfolio in general and the threats that it has, basically. Okay, cool. So, going back to around 2015, we had a severely overexploited fishery. And, you know, you'd, re you'd read in the media, you'd read in the newspaper, fisheries overexploited, so on and so forth. We partnered with the Federal Ministry of Climate Change and Environment and came up with what was called the UAE Sustainable Fisheries Program. And what that was about was essentially collecting the data, the scientific data and the socioeconomic data to create that case for change in fisheries management. So what did we do on the science side? Well, at all the different landing sites across Abu Dhabi, we collected data on the fish and, and the species and so on and so forth. And that information um, told us that there'd been around a 90% decline um, in the demersal fishery. Oh. Yeah, I mean, compared to the virgin biomass. But we didn't consider that that information was enough. So what we did is we did an offshore um, independent survey. And there was a partnership with New Zealand, where I'm from. And we had a vessel that went through the deeper waters of the Gulf, that sort of 10 metres and, and over. And funnily enough, the information, the scientific information we got from that corroborated what we'd been finding at our landing sites. 
that there had been a 90% decline. Wow, that's incredible. Yes, but this was a solid survey, 250 days at sea, 2,500 sites. Like Whoa. it was, yeah, it was, it was really, really comprehensive. But we felt that we needed more, more than the science. And when you think about sustainability, it's about people as well. So what we did is we did a, a traditional knowledge survey and we went around all the fishing marginalists, not just of Abu Dhabi, but the UAE. And we interviewed all the sort of elderly and respected fishermen. And it was an incredible cultural experience. You know, these gentlemen had so much knowledge and what they said, not knowing the science, was exactly the same as what the science was telling us. Wow. Yeah, that there had been this 90% decline. So we then had the information, we needed to think about how we presented it. And we'd filmed all these gentlemen talking about the state of the fishery. Mm -hmm. So we put together a short documentary called Our Sea, Our Heritage. It told the story of the science and it had the sort of key guys from each emirate saying, fishery kalas, please can you do something about it? And so on and so forth. So our presentation to leadership was actually this documentary with the voices of the people saying, we've got an issue here, can you please help in solving it? Mm -hmm. And off the back of the regulations were introduced with the support of the community to ban the gagore, you know, the fish trap, that's the major sort of method. And gagore, yeah. Yeah, used to catch fish in, in Abu Dhabi. So I think it's a really good example when you look globally of getting local fisheries management right and indeed, following this happening, EAD ended up authoring a guideline for the IUCN, pulled in case studies from all over the world. And oh, way, amazing. Yeah, it was sort of treated as this case study of excellence and management. You know, I think it's one that the Environment Agency can sit back and the community, the fishing community here in Abu Dhabi can sit back and be proud of, you know, working together, collecting the data and coming up with a solution that sort of fit it all. Is that what kind of inspired the UAE National Framework Statement for Sustainable Fisheries? I guess me and you both know that this was aimed to pursue sustainable fisheries, federal law number 23 of 1999. I wonder if these kind of impacted these federal laws and the ministerial decrees and so on. Absolutely. And, and that was one of the key outcomes of that new A sustainable fisheries program. So, you know, following completion of the science, the interviews, we put together that framework statement for sustainable fisheries with MOCA. And what I liked is that it was very transparent. It was very honest. And it said, we have a severely overexploited fishery and we need to do something major about that. And this is why in Abu Dhabi, we are introducing these regulations and inshallah, the fishery recovers inshallah. in the coming years. And, and it has. The results show 5% to 10% of the virgin biomass up to 60% now. So Amazing. there has been a major recovery since those regs were introduced. Well, I want to uh, sort of focus here and appreciate the work in some detail. What you guys have done with the data collection, which was no small feat. I know I've worked with the Environment Agency before, and I understand how important data is to inform policy. And again, hats off to you guys. That was incredible work, not only in starting, but the rigor of which that was done. And then also the importance of all the stakeholders coming together, as well as partners from abroad, right? The, the vessel that was used, the technical people. But I love how it was turned around to say, okay, now let's speak to the fishermen who have taken care of these waters well before this was the case. And that buy-in to sit with these fishermen, to hear their stories, and then to represent them in a documentary. I think that must have been a real proud moment for them as well. 
to have their voice carried to leadership. Yeah. Um, that I think is, at least in the work I do now as a consultant, as an excellent example of how you take a challenge and you run it through the data, the science, the stakeholder management. This is all the work that needs to happen to get to the right decision. And now you see the results and the fruits of that labor in the biomass, the recovering of the fisheries, and where a lot of people would assume like, oh no, Gargur, that's how we fish, right? These big metal nets and traps that sit underwater, that's always been the case, and we always do that. But you have managed not only to educate and also find that that knowledge sits with the local fishermen, but they respect you having asked to then go and make these changes. I think that's really, that's to be celebrated when I was there at the Environment Agency, that work had started. So very proud also to hear you tell the story again here on Naturally Educated. Now, what I wanted to do maybe is just follow on here with the importance of marine biodiversity and with the context of the issue and the threat to biodiversity. When you consider the deeply embedded history of our country and the traditions and the culture of the UAE, you mentioned that you spoke to them, but what was it about when speaking to these fishermen and hearing not only from Abu Dhabi, from the Emirates across you know, all our coastlines, what were you taking away there from the traditions and culture of how we have managed our fisheries or how we have fished our waters? It was just so authentic. Mm. In each emirate, we'd be, you know, we'd be sitting at the Majlis in many cases the auction was happening, um, happening, happening in the background, and mm. the fishermen were so open. You know, they'd say, "Look, we used to go out and catch gagors full a couple of hundred meters from the shore. You know, now we go out forty miles and we can't catch anything." And these were the anecdotes we were hearing time and again across the emirate. And there was this real rawness that came through from the gents that I think we presented in the documentary and they were just, they were asking for help. They were saying, guys, we've got an issue here. We want it like it was back in the day. Please, can you support us? That's what we did in the doco. And again, a, a, a proud moment for, for EAD. And five years down the track to see the recovery that there's been, it's a really good story, I think, for the UAE and marine conservation management. That's really good. Thing. I just wanted to pick one more thing out of that. We've talked about the gargur and the very reason that these fishermen are seeing the difference, right? They used to catch gargur full of fish. Now they're barely getting it so far. What was it that was causing this biomass, this, this loss of the fisheries that we have? Were we just doing more of it or was there new factors that were involved? I, I think it was um, overfishing, to be honest, mm -hmm. and just using too many gagors in too many places. And they're not really selective gagors. So as an example, we had 12 of the sort of key demersal key species that were caught with a gagore that were overexploited. So actually when you assessed all the different sort of management measures, actually banning that method with the support of the community was the right solution mm -hmm. in order to let these 12 species recover. To give the, the clarity there, what would happen is these gargours, these big nets, and you can see them in certain fish markets where they're built, they're really large, you can stand in some of them, and there's a funnel that walks it, the fish in, but then they can't find their way out. And these fishermen would drop them in the sea, and there would be a boy, so everybody knew where it was. And sometimes those boys go missing and the gargour gets lost. But the idea is then they pull that out and you'll have, like Winston said, there's no selection. It's just whatever swam in and stayed in is what you caught. And, and then you have an impact on many different species. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally fascinated with this. Um, and again, very proud of, of this work. Thank you, Dr. Majid. 
having family that lived on the coast for generations, it's kind of sad to hear what happened to our Gulf, basically, and our fisheries. In reality, this reminds me of the concept of the tragedy of the commons. Everyone wants to take a piece until the whole uh, pie is empty and there's nothing for us to fish. And so these kind of measures help mitigate that, I guess. And speaking of mitigation, Winston, walk us through how you explain the importance of creating marine protected areas to fishermen more than to people that don't participate in this? Oh, marine protected areas are a really key conservation tool. Here in Abu Dhabi, we've got 19 protected areas, six of which are marine, and we cover around 14% of the marine biome. For example, the international target was 10%, so we're well ahead of that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, new targets are being set at the moment. So in Abu Dhabi, what that does is it, it covers representative habitat. So Marawa Marine Protected Area is an example. You know, you go out on the boat there and there's seagrass beds as far as the eye can see. And of course, seagrass is the major food source of dugong and green turtles. So, you know, you go out there and by protecting those areas, protecting the habitat, you're indirectly supporting the species as well. And we've had a stable population of dugong of around 3,000 in Abu Dhabi for the last 25 years because that's how long we've been monitoring those species. So I think marine protected areas in Abu Dhabi and the UAE are, uh, um, again, a, a positive story. Looking globally, you know, in New Zealand as an example, there's one marine protected area I grew up near and I think you've been there, Dr. Majid, perhaps Goat Island. Mm -hmm. You go in the water there and there's snapper and as far as the eye can see and you go perhaps 500 metres down the coast and there's not. Yeah. The spillover effect of marine protected areas for fisheries is really, really key. Well, that makes me think about, you know, these marine protected areas and the necessary sort of rehabilitation of coastal and marine habitats. I'd wonder if you maybe could talk a little bit more about that and maybe the impact of, uh, you know, on climate change. Yeah, so I mean, when, you know, when you're looking at marine policy, you, you, you sort of adopt an ecosystem approach. Mm -hmm. You look at everything, you look at the habitats, you look at, look at the species, you look at the threats, and you, you know, you look at the drivers, pressures, current state, assess the impacts, and then, you know, come up with a plan. And in the case of fisheries, I wanted to touch on this earlier, you know, you don't just come up with that policy or plan. That project yeah. took, us, took us three years in order to make that, you know, get that data to make that policy. Mm -hmm. But back to climate change. So the Arabian Gulf, it is a natural climate change laboratory. And in, at the moment, we are working on climate change adaptation. And there's been a regional risk assessment exercise done for species and habitats. And we assessed, you know, what is happening now and what is happening in the near term, probably by 2040, that's how it's defined by the IPCC, and then long term. And actually, we're already seeing some of the impacts of climate change in the Gulf. So coral reefs, as an example, in 2017, that global bleaching event, it manifested locally here with 73% mortality of our corals, okay? So that was a massive shock for everybody and made us turn from a monitoring only sort of paradigm to what you've just touched on, Dr. Majid, um, rehabilitation. So mm -hmm. we have recently set up four coral nurseries offshore. So we've got Dhoni sites and we've put coral fragments on those nurseries. Yeah. What we're doing is we're putting a million coral fragments 
back into the Abu Dhabi waters of the Gulf in order to try and revive those reefs that were lost in that 2017 bleaching event. So that's a really big, large-scale project aimed at trying to manage mm -hmm. these climate change impacts we're seeing. Mangroves as well, you know, another fantastic sequesterer of carbon. And we've got some great examples in, in Abu Dhabi, the Mangrove National Park, yeah. Jabal Mangrove, Mangrove Boardwalk. And with COP coming up, the target was set by Her Excellency the Minister to have 100 million mangroves planted by the time COP comes around. And can say with pride that already yeah. the agency through its plantation in Aldafra has already planted 10 million, which is absolutely outstanding. And again, like marine protected areas, there's spillover effects for fisheries because this is where the juvenile fish hang out. Yeah. This is where migratory and wading birds hang out. So again, another example of sort of climate change adaptation when it comes to marine biodiversity, mangroves and corals, good good examples. These are really the sort of sanctuaries for all these species. Not only are there services provided by these marine protected areas, but really where a species can shelter to at least recover from. And they're all the more important. Absolutely. And that's that ecosystem approach in, in action, right? protected areas, rehabilitating habitat, protecting species, helping species when they need assistance, like our turtles that wash up on the beaches in winter, even rogue uh, whale sharks that end up in, in canals. So I'd say we've got a very active and positive team who really get involved when it comes to an issue in the marine environment. That's brilliant. So Winston, we heard rumors about a new research vessel that you guys operate. Is that true? <laughs> so, so here. How, how is it helping you with the with the, with conducting research? If you so, may share that. Mafi Mushkila, Safina Kabira, Mashallah. <laughs> Safina um, Kabira. <laughs> so no, it's um it's being built, purpose built in Spain at the moment. Oh wow! It's nearly complete. So it's been built over the last two years. Inshallah, by the end Inshallah. of this year, it will be arriving in uh, the UAE's waters and this is going to be the key marine conservation and research tool that we're going to be able to use to study the largely unstudied um, deeper waters of the Arabian Gulf. And, and what I mean by deeper waters, it's not deep waters, it's 10 metres and deeper, right? Mm -hmm. This is where the vessel is going to operate. So we're looking at doing fishery surveys, replicating the one we did five years ago, and the cetacean surveys, deep water habitat surveys. It's going to be incredible. And uh, the team's really, really excited for the end of the year and uh, inshallah the arrival of the vessel. Maybe could you tell us a little bit about what instruments or what function a research vessel has for those that don't understand what it takes to really measure biomass, to get on a boat for 250 days and study the waters? What kind of stuff are you doing on there? Yeah, so to use fisheries as an example, typically we'd go out to a site and we'd set a sort of transect line of about a kilometre mm -hmm. and we would put a trawl net down and we would trawl above the seabed, collect the fish, bring the fish up on deck, sort the fish into different species, different sizes. At the same time, we'd put gagores down and let them soak. We'd do an acoustic survey, so we'd sort of combine the acoustics of what we're seeing down there with the fish we're actually catching. And when you do this over or at the scale that you do these surveys at, you get a really good indication of the biomass of, of the fishery. So, you know, that's only fisheries. It's got lots of bells and whistles, like remotely occupied vehicles that you can put down and oh, wow. take, ama yeah, take amazing um 
footage of the habitat. It's got different laboratories and it can sleep up to 29 people. So there's there's lots of room on there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Are we invited? Is that, is that what you're saying? Get out there for a weekend of diagnostics <laughs> in the picking, water. You're picking, up, you're picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll, see, we'll see what we can do. No, I, I think this is really interesting for the listeners because there is a lot of work to be done to collect data like this. And I want them to understand this is a monumental effort and the lengths at which the Environment Agency of Abu Dhabi and the country are going to, to really measure what we've historically relied on to survive as a community that on the waters, but ultimately what is critical for the whole Arabian Gulf as a, you know an ecosystem. So yeah, I'm, I'm getting more excited and we'll be on the boat when it's here. Inshallah, inshallah. <laughs> Inshallah. Winston, if you don't mind, I want to tilt a bit towards more specifics and, and discuss endangered species. Now on this season, we'll talk more about turtles, dugongs, and so on. And I want to know how the process of conserving these species go from your perspective and your work. Sure. So, I mean, the species are protected by law as a starting point, but turtles is an example. So in winter, you know, you find that turtles, particularly juvenile turtles, wash up on the beaches satiats and others and they're typically covered in barnacles mm -hmm. and what this is is that the water temperature gets too low for them too cool for them yep. and they kind of go into this sort of i guess hypnotic state where they just sort of sit on the surface and and i guess don't move for a couple of weeks at a time and these barnacles grow oh, and, wow. and and then it's very difficult for them actually to swim down and collect food so they wash up on the beaches and if anybody does come across a you know a turtle, call 800-555. And Environment Agency, we've got a fantastic MOU with the new and beautiful National Aquarium Abu Dhabi. They're a fantastic team. So what we do is we put these turtles that wash up into the aquarium. We give them food. We take the barnacles off them. We strengthen them up. And then typically about March time, mm -hmm. again, when the, when the water's warming up, um, we release these back into the Gulf. And over the years, there's been you know, hundreds of turtles re-released back into the Gulf. And, and, and we're talking about a critically endangered species. So it's really lovely, these community events at Sadiat where people and children can come along and release a turtle and get up close to nature and sort of see what it's all about. So we're, we've got a very active role in marine conservation, a hands-on role, I'd, I'd say. Yeah. Halaura di Shigawata. I think is the phrase. I love to figure out The one thing I will ask, though, is we've talked now about what the Environment Agency is doing, the conservation work, the studying, etc. But really, if we're going to be stemming any sort of marine pollution and promoting and encouraging the conservation, what are we doing to communicate this to businesses and what business practices can be brought forward to encourage this? So we've got some really good education networks on this point. So, mm -hmm. and, and this is across all of our different stakeholder groups. So as an example for schools, we've got the Sustainable Schools Initiative for universities, the Sustainable Campus Initiative for businesses and, and private entities. We've got the Abu Dhabi Sustainability Group and the Green Business Network. And these are really um, fantastic forums where all the different sort of businesses and stakeholders come together and, and discuss key issues and what we can do about them. One, as an example, is the single use of, of plastic. And uh, recently or earlier in the year, 
Environment Agency Abu Dhabi banned plastic bags and launched a bottle return scheme as part of a mm -hmm. comprehensive policy. And, you know, that's a really solid statement to stem pollution because we are seeing the links between pollution impacting marine biodiversities. In our turtles, in his example, with some of the juvenile turtles we were finding, many of them had plastic inside them that was sort of coming through in their fecal matter. So when you're seeing this on your sort of home patch, you're really real motivation in Abu Dhabi to do something about it. And again, to bring film back into it, the agency produced a film on this called Wild Abu Dhabi, The Turtles of Aldafra. And uh, the thing I really love about it is it, it's our team, you know, we've got our young mm -hmm. Emirati scientists, yeah, sort of Maith Al-Hamalis, Hind Al-Amaris presenting this documentary and talking with real passion about turtles and growing up with turtles and the threats facing them and and actually what the public can do about them so you know that's why i would recommend people watch that's to, brilliant where can you find this clearly for everybody to to is that on youtube we can share a link through the podcast and cool. also emirates said he had if you're flying it's on the flights which is great so great support from the airlines amazing well i want to broaden that sort of perspective up a bit. We've talked now about sort of how we can, you know, encourage businesses and sort of manage pollution of marine biodiversity. But what are the more direct effects of climate change? Mentioning the Gulf is the laboratory, but what are the things you're seeing with climate change? So we can definitely say the coral. I mean, it's a global story manifesting locally, and, and that is mm -hmm. far and away the, the largest impact we are seeing um, here in the Arabian Gulf. We are seeing other impacts that are consistent with what you would expect under climate change. You couldn't necessarily say that they're definitely from climate change, but as an example, Butina, you know, this sort of jewel in Marawa, Butina Atoll, you know, every year it gets sort of eight to ten turtle nests, Hawksbill turtle nests, and there was a storm surge there um, one year when we were filming the film and um, all of the turtle nests were lost. Oh, man. Yeah, on it that year. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. Another one also related to turtles was we had a really strange event last year where across Abu Dhabi there was a mortality of large adult green turtles and this was reported in the you know in the media around 100 and all in sort of different places of Abu Dhabi and mm -hmm. the theory is that it was heat induced stress on these animals we can't say that with 100% certainty but when you're seeing this happening in 2021 2022 and climate change isn't meant to be happening for many years into the future it's it's mm. it's a real wake up call for everybody and alhamdulillah we've got a really passionate team working on uh, working on solutions that's great to hear well even that that is in the realm of possibility is incredible just that heat could impact them that much yeah i mean it's it's scary right and it was all in different places, mm. you know, like you, you, could, you couldn't say it was directly something in one place that affected all of them. It was across the board. Mm. I heard a fact randomly the other day about turtles and how the temperature impacts the different sex of the turtle. Yeah. And and that kind of impacts the population over the long time. Is that the case here as well? So Hindal Amri, she's fantastic. She's one of our team. She's doing a PhD on turtles. She's nearly finished, <laughs> which is cool. And Mashallah. so that's right like if the temperature of the nests is too hot you'd typically get 99% of the eggs coming out as females mm. wow. and this has been well documented in Australia now Hind and the team did an experiment whereby if a turtle nests clearly not above the high tide line again taking an active role we dig those nests up and we put them above the high tide line 
and in one place we put them under a simple reche structure and the turtles that came out of the eggs under that structure were sort of larger and healthier than the you know than the ones that that weren't so just that little bit of shade actually did them wonders and that was i thought it was quite an interesting finding very yeah i guess that's kind of the mitigation of climate change impacts and i really hope that they kind of find a, a way around it because it's such a serious uh, issue so winston i i want to think of the long-term understanding for our listeners to understand a bit more about the integrated marine management and how that impacts the marine uh, ecosystem. So I mentioned at the start, the Environment Agency is very much a sort of referee between nature and society. And going back five years, we had this wonderful plan developed called Plan Maritime. And what that was, was it was stakeholders from across Abu Dhabi, all different industries from shipping to oil and gas to environment to municipalities, all coming together in, in one room to talk about their priorities and what they want to do here and there. And what we ended up with was a, a comprehensive marine spatial plan that sort of mapped out the Abu Dhabi's maritime domain and where there were conflicting uses, solutions were found. In addition to that spatial plan, there was a, an implementation plan. And in that, there were 244 management actions to be implemented by 19 entities. And since then, everybody's been sort of working together and pulling in the same direction to achieve that. So, you know, spatial planning and integrated coastal zone management, absolutely key as a sustainable management and marine conservation tool when it comes to, to the maritime. And I mentioned before earlier the process. Again, the process is so, so key to getting that end result. Well, it's good to see that we've got so many different parties coming together to be able to really cooperate on what is a all of country challenge. That again, that's a lot of stakeholders, that's a lot of different people and, you know, even sort of challenges around conflict resolution, like how are we to share this space and still protect it? With that, I'm wondering what is the UAE doing along with that? You had the example of the UAE National Framework Statement for Sustainable Fisheries. I wonder, are there any other things you could draw on or examples at sort of country scale or otherwise maybe at a emirate by emirate level? Yeah, so I mean, coastal development as an example, right? I think internationally, perhaps there's this narrative that there's a lot of coastal development in the UAE and it's bad for the environment and this sort of thing. Well, actually, it couldn't be further from the truth. We've got a, a mature 25-year-old environmental impact assessment procedure whereby any development that's in the coastal realm, effects have to be assessed, mitigation has to be put in place. And we've got one really fantastic example of that in Abu Dhabi going back a few years. That is Khalifa Port. So they were looking at putting Khalifa Port near Razganada, which is actually a beautiful coral reef, but realizing or after studying that reef would be impacted by the port placement. The port was actually moved two kilometers down the coast and designed so as to not impact that coral reef. So I think that's a really positive example of moving a port to protect the coral reef. And, you know, and really, really sort of demonstrates how, how serious Abu Dhabi and the UAE are about um, the maritime domain. That's good to hear. I want to switch gears here as we come to the end of this podcast. And I want to give you some ideas about what we can do to help as private citizens. And tell me if it's a good idea or not. How does that sound? Montaz. <laughs> okay, yalla. Idea number one. Should we be eating more eco-friendly seafood and fish? Yeah, 100%. Uh, sustainably caught. Sir. Sustainably caught. 
Okay, how about limiting our disposable plastic use? A hundred percent. Good. No coffee cups, use your own coffee cup. You can't have a plastic bag in Abu Dhabi anyway, but you know, make sure you use a reusable one. <laughs> okay, good. I mean, Abu Dhabi anyway is, is helping us do that, yeah. So, okay, let's look into, for example, participating in cleanups. A hundred percent. This is so important. This mm. is so important. So the Gulf, the, the, the water flow in the Gulf takes around three years to get from the Straits of Hormuz and back around, right? So anything that's sort of littered on the coast or littered in the Gulf stays in the Gulf. So really, really important that these beach cleanups happen. Otherwise, the stuff just stays there. So if that's you and you're doing that, thank you. You're doing an amazing job and please keep it up. That's good. That's good. This is a random question. This is kind of a curveball. For my birthday, can I use balloons? <laughs> no. no. I'd say no. <laughs> I see these party boats going out there and, and balloons being released. And I know it's a birthday and so on and so forth and kids and I've got kids too, but I have seen balloons inside of turtles, which is That's scary. Oops. That's really sad. Impacted on their mortality. So I would say no. So I'll skip the balloons, but in its place, I want to look into asking my friends or buying my friends ocean friendly gifts. Are you familiar with those? What should I look into? Talk us through it. Ocean friendly gifts, examples. Yeah. Things that don't include plastic, for example, maybe no packaging or some, uh, some disposable sort of packaging? I'm definitely for little packaging and less plastic bags. Mm -hmm. The amount of times that's come up where I'm thinking, <laughs> I've got hands, I don't have anything else to carry, I don't need a bag for the one thing. I'm definitely on that. Yeah, 100%. I'd say get them a mask and snorkel, send them to say, <laughs> send them, to, send them to Snoopy Island, because I'll tell you what, you generally see turtles there. It is beautiful, it's close to shore, and you can have- It's a good start. I think people need that experience with nature to actually see it and feel it and then act accordingly you know so experience yeah. is the currency on that one i think that is great all right um well that's 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 all ideas that i have but if you have something else to share with us that would be great as well i'd just say look if you're an environmentalist or believe in sustainability live your values you know be a leader in your family and be a leader in your community you know no disposable coffee cups reusable bags all these sorts of things and, you know, in a polite way, get on the case of your family, community, and be the change. But it starts with you, is what I'd say. Wonderful. Absolutely. Winston Coey, Manager of Marine Policy at the Environment Agency of Abu Dhabi. Thank you so much. This was an awesome, awesome sit down. Um, love the energy, and it's still as strong as ever your passion. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us and uh, yeah, for your time. Shokran Jazeelan, gents, wa ilal amam. Ilal amam. So, wow, what an episode. Guys, I just wanted to remind you again, what we want you to do is to get in touch, reach out with your comments, or even with a story to tell. If you have anything to share with us, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Environment Abu Dhabi, as one word, or find us on our website or our YouTube at Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. And please do give us a like and hit that subscribe where you find or listen to your podcasts. As always, thank you very much for being with us. I'm Majid Al-Qasimi. And I'm Abdurrahman Saabi. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys.